you open your Bibles, please, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, the title of the sermon is Live Clean. It has nothing to do with you actually washing yourself physically. Um, it has to do with the latter part of the sermon, which deals with being washed and sanctified and justified. Uh, not all that creative when it comes to sermon titles. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, this passage, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is still dealing with issues in the Corinthian church. And we're going to see today um, a particular grievous sin that was taking place within the church. It's broader application, though, taught to the fact that brothers were not loving brothers. And they were certainly not loving God. And by God's grace, we will see that as Paul dealt with their arrogance two weeks ago, he said he came to the church and said, you're arrogant. And you're, you're aligning yourself and you're dividing along the lines of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And he said last week, he said, you're arrogant and you have sin. You have willful public known sin in your body and you're not addressing it. And, and this week he turns to yet another issue. This is the third major issue that Paul is dealing with the church in Corinth. It's not the last one. So if you think, wow, it's heavy, it's going to get heavier. Um, and in, in this particular chapter, he's dealing, with, um, he's dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ suing one another. They're actually taking each other to secular co- courts. Um, but the problem underneath that is a, a lack of love. And the problem underneath that, as we'll see, is a fractured understanding of the gospel itself. And by God's grace, I hope that we will see a few things this morning. One, um, what our lack of love for our brother actually looks like. Number two, how that is a lack of love for God. If you lack love for your brother or sister in Christ, that means you lack love for God. And then the third thing I want us to see is that the, the power of Christ loving us to change all that, to change the mess in the church and to change the mess we have in our relationship with God through the love of Christ. And so by God's grace, you've come this morning to hear the word of God, not Pastor Keith. By God's grace, your ears will actually hear him speak and you will respond as we ought to respond with hope, with conviction, with repentance and with loving obedience. This is the word of God. Um, Had an opportunity uh, this past week to spend some time with professing believers and one of them actually commented, we were talking about their church and their pastor and the preaching and teaching And this one individual said, you know, we really like our pastor because he doesn't spend that much time teaching on the Bible. And after I fell out of my chair and hit my head on the floor and we picked ourselves back up, we realized, you know, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. And so the fact that you are here and your desire is to actually hear the word of God preached, you do know that's an act of grace. It's only by God's grace that you have any desire to hear God's word preached anywhere, here or any other church. And so by God's grace, we'll do that. Now, let's look at the first point. One, our lack of love for one another. He, Paul states the problem right off in verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The Corinthian church, like many American Christians today, when they had a grievance inside the church, instead of resolving that in the context of the body of Christ, they would take that grievance and they would go to a secular court with a secular judge who would then rule in that, on that grievance with secular laws. This, Paul says this is grievous. And it was grievous to the apostle because it was grievous to God. And it was grievous to God for two primary reasons. One, the church, no matter how small, is fully capable equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit, gifted believers to resolve grievances within the church. One. And number two, 
It's a horrible testimony when we move outside the church to resolve differences between God's children. Let's look at the first one. Believers in Corinth, the true church throughout the world, is equipped. We are capable of dealing with disputes in our own family. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, or do you not know? And he says it, that's a rhetorical. Do you not know me? Of course you know. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? In other words, Paul's saying, every true church, every true church, where believers are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, where they submit to the word of God, they are gifted accordingly to take grievances, to take issues that arise in the church, and the church is equipped, fully equipped, to deal with those. We can go one step further. The body of Christ is the only ordained organization structure on earth by God to deal with these issues. The only one. The body of Christ, the church of Christ, not the courts not psychologists, not social workers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Wanting the Corinthian church to see this clearly, he takes me, he says, I want, he says, I want to paint a picture for you. He says, I want, to, I want to cast your eyes into the future because there's going to be a day when you will stand with Christ and you will judge the world. He says, not only that, there'll be a day when you stand over, you rule over angels. This is God's ordained plan for all those God has called out and consecrated in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we're told that God raised us up, past tense, with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, Paul's saying there's an already not yet paradigm here. He says, in a sense, you've already been raised with Christ. In a sense, you're already reigning with Christ right now. And he says, if that's true, then live like it now. Judge rightly now. Solve grievances now amongst brothers and sisters instead of running to the world. Because as a believer, one day you're going to judge the world. One day you're going to rule over angels. And, and if that's the case, then these things that we do now, as, as, as large as they may seem, they're trivial cases. I do, I do believe that we've had some significant cases arise in our own church over the past several years. But even the most severe cases must be considered trivial to judging the world or ruling over angels. And Paul's saying you're equipped. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. The Holy Spirit revealed this. He said, you made man for a little while lower than the angels. You have God, you have ordained, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Man, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Why? Because everything has been put under subjection to Christ. And therefore, if you're in Christ, then you're co-heirs with Christ. You're going to rule with Christ. And that means everything's been put in subjection to you. We too will rule one day with Christ. We too will judge the world. And therefore what? Paul says, look at verses, the latter part of verse three and following. He says, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? How much more then ought we be judging matters that are taking place now? Verse four, so if you have such cases, here's the counsel. Here's the the very simple didactic teaching. He says, why do you lay them down before those who have no standing in the church? Why do you take cases in the family of God to people who are not in the church? Verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? You have a grievance, and you flee to a secular judge, and you air your dirty laundry before all the world to see? Paul's saying it's absolutely preposterous. You submit to men and their rules and their regulations rather than submitting to brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible commands us to submit to one another. You know, growing up, my father um, was very faithful in teaching us lots of things, painting, electrical, I mean, lots of things. And I'm very thankful for that now. I didn't like it much then, but I'm thankful now so I can work on my car and I can work on houses. And uh, so part of my problem now is I have trouble someone coming in and working on my house. If I absolutely cannot do it, then I'll have some come in. Otherwise, I'm going to do it myself. And the problem is, as a perfectionist, as someone who's had a brother who's a contractor who's taught me a lot of things, oftentimes I can do it better than the person I'll hire. And so I think to myself, why would I pay someone money if I have the time to do something that I can do better? It's the same with the church. We are capable, we are equipped, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God to solve any grievance of any kind that arises in the body of Christ. And therefore, it is utterly foolish to go hire the services of a secular judge in a secular court according to secular laws. Paul's saying, what's wrong with you guys, Corinth? What's wrong with you guys? Take care of these matters inside. We're more than capable. Of course, that requires what? That requires us actually doing it. It requires us submitting to one another. It requires a sticking around. You guys are still here. Good. Not leaving. If you have a grievance, you don't leave. If you have a grievance, you don't go to a secular judge. If there's a grievance in the body, you come to the brother or sister. You come to the church. And by God's grace and love, we'll all work it out. You don't flee. You don't go to the judge. There's a second reason, though, that Paul says we ought to do this. And he says, I, I say this to your shame because it is utterly shameful that brothers and sisters in Christ will go to a secular authority and ruin the testimony of the gospel when a brother is, is taking to law another brother. Look at verses 6 and following. The latter part of verse 6, brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Brother, taking brother to court to get their, what they deserve, to get, have their rights exercised by a secular law and in the presence of the unsaved. Instead of coming to the church and seeking biblical arbitration, instead of coming to brothers and sisters, say, listen, I got a grievance against my sister. I have a grievance against my brother. Can someone help? Even in a church as small as ours, I know so many of you would say, of course, let's meet, let's pray, let's open up the Bible, let's resolve this in the family. Why? Because it's honoring to Christ. And it, it means that we don't have to go outside the church and spoil the name of Jesus and ruin the gospel. What a horrible testimony when brother goes to law. It literally means to sue. When the brother sues the brother, for all the world to see. Paul's right in verse 7 when he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. That means before it ever gets to court, before any judge hears it, before any decisions rendered, Paul's saying you've already been defeated, both individuals involved or all individuals involved. It doesn't matter if you're in the right or you're in the wrong. He says as soon as you move outside the church and have the world see it, you're airing your dirty laundry. And now the world 
sees you differently, sees Christ differently. Defeated, why? Because, saints, this is the family of God. And the family of God is to live differently. We have the Holy Spirit. The world does not. We have the word of God. The world does not. We supposedly know the word of God and submit to it. The world does not. In the family of God, when there are grievances, people are supposed to come together in love and submit to one another in love. And that means rather than filing a lawsuit and hiring a lawyer and sitting before a secular judge who in our culture today probably hates God, instead of that, we're supposed to confess We're supposed to seek forgiveness. We're supposed to give forgiveness. We're supposed to have biblical reconciliation. That's so different. It's radically different. And and when that happens, and when the world sees that, that glorifies God. That honors Christ and the gospel. Because that's that's not of the flesh. But when when we hate our brother by suing them, when we take a brother and sister to an outside source, and it doesn't necessarily be at the court, it can, be, it can be psychologists, it can be social workers. When we move outside the church, we are not magnifying the power of the gospel. We're not revealing life in the family of God. It's supposed to be different here. And we go outside, it, it ruins the testimony. Ruins it. Paul said in verse, the latter part of verse 7, he says, why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded in other words why not lose your case before you take it to court just lose it why not give up your rights even if you've been completely wrong for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel why not suffer wrong at the hands of a brother or sister so that the gospel is not smeared and the name of Jesus not maligned when you move outside of the church. Why not? Why not, as a Bible-believing church, submit to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 and following? He says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Wouldn't that be wonderful? A brother's going to take you to court and see you. Say, now here, take, take my coat, take my shirt. What else do you want? You want some money? You want my shoes? Give it to them. He said, well, why would I do that? I wasn't in the wrong for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the testimony of our Lord. Jesus continued. He said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In other words, sacrifice your reputation. Sacrifice your money. Sacrifice your jacket. Sacrifice your your um, your time for the reputation of Jesus. Certainly, his name is more valuable than your time. The reputation of Christ is more valuable than your jacket or your grievance or whatever skirmish we may have here. The gospel and its pure testimony of the world is more important than any right we have. No matter how wrong, no matter how much you've been wronged, and I know some of you have been wronged, giving up these things for the name of Jesus. Saints, all of this that Corinth was going through, it revealed a fundamental breach in love. A fundamental breach in love. Suing a brother rather than bringing it to the church is a violation of love. 
refusing to give up your rights and your time and your money or your coat is a violation of love. When we say, you know what, I'm going to have it the way I want it, I'm going to do it the way I want it, I don't care about you, I don't care about your needs, I don't care about sacrifice in the name of Christ, it's a violation of love. It's about your wants and your needs and not about others. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized when we go to court, we do so because we don't want the verdict of the church. We know what the verdict of the church will be. The verdict of the church will be sacrifice. The verdict of the church may be suffering. The verdict of the church may be give it up and make peace for the sake of the name of Christ. And we don't want to hear that. We don't want to submit to one another and we don't want to submit to the word of God. So we go outside to find a lawyer and to find a judge who will rule as we want. None of this is loving towards God. None of it. God the Father desires our lives to be lived in such a way with one another that when the world sees it, they don't go, ah, Christianity. They see us and our love for one another and our sacrifice, even when wronged, and they say, what? Who does this? Who lives like this? Who sacrifices like this? Those who love Christ. Those who are loved by Christ. Magnifying his name. When we take a brother or sister to court, when we flee grievances, when we don't resolve it in the context of the church, when we seek worldly assistance, we bring shame, not honor, to our Lord. Love is vacated, and God's reputation is compromised. You know, as a father, when the children are younger, they don't so much anymore, praise God. Uh, When they were younger and they would fight, It was always bad when they were fighting. But when they would fight outside the house and they would fight in the presence of non-believers, as a Christian parent, it would cut me through and through. Because, and not just as a pastor, this is for every Christian parent. Because when the non-believer sees your children acting like their children and your children backbiting and fighting like the world backbites and fights, they think to themselves, What's the difference? There's obviously no difference. I'm raising my children just as you're raising my children. I don't need Christ. It would grieve me. And just that reflection alone, I can only imagine to what degree our Heavenly Father is grieved when we don't get along. When we fight and backbite in the church. And then worse yet, because it's hard enough, I never thought it was right. I never enjoyed it when they were in the house. But when I, we go outside and we take it and we fight out there, oh, how grieved he must be. How broken it must make him to see his children air their dirty laundry for all the world to see to the detriment of his son. In verse 8, he says, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is not love. This is a lack of love. Paul's saying it's evident in your church. There's a lack of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I would argue that this lack of love for the brethren was only symptomatic of a much larger issue and a much deeper problem that Paul then talks about in verses 9 and 10. So first, we see a lack of love for our brothers and sisters. How many of you are still with me? Say amen. Amen. Point number two, our lack of love for God. Our lack of love for God. The problem with a letter like 1 Corinthians is we become very didactic and instructional in the teaching 
and we begin to think of it ethically or morally. We say, well, you know, Paul talked about their arrogance to, that led to, to disunity in the church. So ethically, what does that mean? We can't say that we follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We must be one body submitting to Christ, and therefore we need to change, and that's true. And Paul comes along and he says, you know, arrogantly, you have sin in the church, willful, unrepentant, public sin, and you're not dealing with it. So the right response to that, that moral dilemma is for the church to exercise church discipline, and we should, and that's good, and that's true. When we look at the passage for today, we know, we know that when we don't resolve grievances within the body, if we go outside the church or we just leave the church, we know that's not right. And so ethically and morally, we say, we need to stay. We need to, to, to work things out. We need to arbitrate in, um, amongst the brothers and sisters. And that's right, and that's true. But anytime we take a simple ethical or moral dilemma and we apply the external without contemplating the internal, we may vacate the gospel as well. What do I mean? Each of these sins that we looked at the division within the church, the public sin that was not being addressed, the, the, the brothers and sisters fighting and having grievances and going outside the church, each, each right response, each right response in the church has to have a corresponding right response in the heart of the church, in the heart of the people. In other words, we cannot separate the right external response with the right internal response. You can't just have an ethical without a motivational. We can't separate profession of faith on one hand and the holy lives we're being called to live by the power of the gospel on the other. James chapter 2, verse 18 says it best. James says, Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. When our lives consistently do not match our profession, when we say we profess Christ, but I follow Paul, when we as a church say we, we have faith through Jesus, in Jesus Christ and then we don't exercise church discipline, when we make verbal professions of faith to the world and then we take our brothers and sisters to court, there's something catastrophically wrong. The outside's not matching the inside. They have to be together. And what happens in all of these cases and all sin issues that we deal with, is it reveals a deeper problem. It reveals a gospel problem. And in many cases within the church today, I, I would argue it reveals a salvation problem. A salvation issue. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul brings this home here. It may not be that we're just trying to side with Paul or Cephas or Apollos. It may be that we're not saved. It may, it may not be that, that we're just allowing sin in the church and not exercising church discipline. It may be that we're not saved. It may not be that we're just taking our brother to court because we, we struggle with greed and selfishness. It may be that we don't know Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to this. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, and that list can go on and on, can it not? We can add our own. Will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. It's such a sweeping, and I would argue most sobering, two verses. 
for the believer and the non-believer, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the tendency that we have in the faith is to separate our profession from the lives that we live. We'll say one thing and we'll sue our brother in court. We'll say one thing and we will not exercise church discipline. We'll say one thing as one body and then we'll follow Paul. Paul you can't, we can't do that. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. One commentator wrote, like he said it like this. He said, the pagan, the Jew, the Muslim, the nominal Christian have all been exact in the performance of religious services and zealous in the assertion and defense of what they regard as truth while unrestrained in the indulgence of every evil passion. And he says, this arises from looking upon religion as an outward service and God as a being to be feared and propitiated, but not to be loved and obeyed. And he's saying, for centuries, people of every religion have been really good about exercising religious ceremonies, like going to church on Sunday and arguing for the truth while simultaneously living lives of holy unrighteousness. Not wholly sanctified, but wholly completely. This can't be in the Christian faith. We cannot make a profession and then live contrary to that profession. We can't claim the name of Christ and live unrighteously through and through. This is a mistake that no one can afford. No one can make this mistake without catastrophic consequences. According to the gospel, all moral imperatives, all ethical applications, everything that we are supposed to do in Christ is to come from worship. It's to come from the inside out. In other words, I'm not to divide and follow Christ, to follow Cephas or Paul or Apollos because I love Christ. We're not to allow sin to reside, public, willful, unrepentant sin to re- reside in the church because we worship the living God. We're not to take brother or sister to court because God's changed our hearts. Every external application has to have a corresponding right response in the heart of man by the gospel of grace. True holiness. True holiness is that internal movement brought upon by the Holy Spirit to conform a man's soul to the will of God. It's the Holy Spirit taking your desires and your passions and your heart and your mind and bringing it into radical conformity with the will of God. Being religious in profession, being religious in your doctrinal truths, which perform people are often, even even being right in ceremony. We're going to have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. Even being right in ceremony, if if this does not rule and move your life, if your life doesn't match it, it is fatal. It's fatal. You can go to church your whole life. You can read your Bible every day. You can be baptized once. You can be an Anabaptist and baptized twice or three or four times. You can take communion every time we gather. You can give your money to the poor. You can say all the right things. Christians are good at saying all the right things, but if your life does not match 
this profession, if there is unrighteousness pervasive that defines you, Paul says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will not have God. Look at verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, do not be deceived. Whenever the Bible says do not be deceived, pause because most of us are. There are millions of people at this very moment who have gathered in churches in this country and certainly in this day throughout the world that are deceived in light of this teaching. Millions who are living willful, habitual lives lives of sin, unrighteousness, with the full expectation that they're going to inherit the kingdom of God and all the blessings that come through Christ. Paul says, don't be fooled. Once saved in Christ, you cannot continue to be enslaved to sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery or homosexuality. He says, once saved in Christ, you can't continue for the rest of your life as a thief or a viler or a swindler. You can't. The power of God resides in you. You cannot continue in unrighteousness, nor would you want to, and expect to enter the righteous kingdom. You cannot continue in unrighteousness and expect to worship the righteous king. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, those who enter by it are many. That wide gate... That wide gate includes many people who profess Christ, who go to church, but live a life of complete unrighteousness. That's a wide gate. Jesus said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now, some will reject this immediately and say, that sounds the opposite of the gospel of grace. That sounds like works. That sounds like religion. That sounds like I have to be righteous and if I'm righteous, God will will grant me his kingdom. And if I'm unrighteous, that he will not. That does not sound like salvation by grace, pastor. And I've heard you preach that for years. Let me be very careful here. I hope you're listening with all your ears. At least the two you have. Neither Paul nor our Lord were arguing a gospel other than grace. But they are arguing this. That with the gospel of grace comes great power to overcome your, my, unrighteousness. They're not asking, they're not, they're not teaching a gospel of another kind. They're teaching the gospel of grace, but they're saying the gospel of grace comes in with power and it changes people. It moves people. It moves us out of our unrighteousness, out of our adultery, out of our idolatry, out of our homosexuality and our sexual immorality, out of our reviling and our swindling It moves us out of that and it moves us into righteousness. Day by day, year by year over your entire life. That means, saints, listen closely, lest I leave you here scattered and confused. If you cannot be saved by your good works, you cannot be unsaved by your unrighteousness. Okay? We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. That means you cannot be saved by what you do 
and you cannot be unsaved by the things that you do not do that you ought not or the things that you do that you should not. A person is either chosen by God and saved by his grace or he is not. So how can Paul say that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Because Paul knows what the Corinthians know. That's why he said in verse 2, do you not know because they knew better. Paul knows what we know. And that is this. If you have a right love for God through Christ, because Christ has come to you, Christ has redeemed you, Christ has breathed life into you, he's made you alive, you are dead and you're now alive. If you have that right love for God, where with each and every day you're growing in your love for him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then Paul knows, the Corinthians know, and we know, listen closely, that that love has the power to make you holy to take you, to take all of us from that unholy, unrighteous, willful sinner to people who actually long to become holy, begin to hate the sexual immorality and hate the swindling and hate the reviling, where the sin actually becomes, the Bible says, utterly sinful, and we begin to mortify it. Paul knows what we know, that the love of Christ through the gospel has the power to transform us from the inside out. So what? So that we will actually love our brothers and sisters as God created us to love. We will love our wives and love our husbands as we were created to love. We'll love our children and love our church and love the lost because of the love that God has given us through Christ Jesus. This right love in you planted and watered will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. The unrighteousness will be replaced with righteousness. The sexual immorality will be replaced with purity. The adultery will be replaced with fidelity. The idolatry will be replaced with a right worship of the living God. The reviler's tongue will cease. The thief will give back. We change. We change. Because that's what the gospel does. That's the power of the gospel. Living holy lives to his honor and glory. That means real transformation, not just professed. It means real sanctification, not just going to church. It means real submission to the word of God, not just reading your Bibles. It means that your external and your internal will coincide and grow as you live in Christ. For those who are truly saved... Living an unrighteous life does not unsave you. But it does mean this. It reveals a lack of saving power in your life. If you continue in your sexual immorality, in your adultery, in your idolatry, in your swindling, in your backbiting, if you continue these lies of unrighteousness, if there's no sanctification, if there's no holiness... It means the Holy Spirit does not reside in you. It means that you have never come to a saving grace. It means you don't know Christ. So you say, how could you say that? How can you be so judgmental? That's not me. That's the word of God. Jesus said it so clearly in Matthew chapter 7. This is a passage that you've heard me say, some of you probably hundreds of times, because I remember reading it for the first time, and I remember studying it for the first time, and it, it just hit me. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus is talking to all those in the church. 
not the outsiders. So don't say, oh, he's talking about people who don't believe. He's talking about those in the context of the, of the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ on earth. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verbal profession. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, on that day, the day of the Lord, we come before him. On that day, many, listen to this thing, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they're calling on his name. They went to church, they were baptized, they read their Bibles. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They were active. They were orthodox. Verse 23, Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Paul says is not contrary to the gospel. It's in accordance with the gospel. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the gospel of Luke, before Jesus uttered a single public word, John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Another one of my favorite passages. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, they were coming out by the hundreds. Listen to this sermon. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Come in, sit, relax. You brood of vipers, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he says, listen, Whatever internal commitment, whatever external profession you make, it better have a right corresponding response in your life. There better be fruit. There better be holiness. There better be transformation of heart and mind. He continues. He says, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. He said, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Do not be be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There must be fruit in your life. There must be fruit in your life. The ax is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Why? Because the gospel has power to change us. The gospel has power to bring fruit in our lives. The great work of the gospel of grace is not hidden. It doesn't hide itself. It permeates us and it changes us through and through. It cultivates in us new desires, righteous desires. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we speak. It changes our motivation to be other-centered rather than self-centered. It percolates in us a desire to actually serve and to do things, to minister to people. It it creates in us a a power that overcomes our fear so that we can share the gospel with the lost and bring hope to those who don't know Christ. The gospel does that. It moves us to love and it moves us to obedience. It moves us to the word of God to hear and to submit. Not continued unrighteousness. Not perpetual willful sin. Paul says to them at Corinth, as I pray that we hear as well today, he says, 
your behavior shows a lack of love for your brothers. He says, worse yet, it shows a lack of love for God. He goes, and that's dangerous because a lack of love for your brothers and a lack of love for God may mean that you don't know Christ. There's a gospel question underneath it all. Now, at this point, if you're like me, you might be saying to yourself, "Uh, I'm in trouble. I, I hear this, and I think that there's no way. There's no way I will ever inherit the kingdom of God because I know myself, and I'm unrighteous through and through. What hope is there in any of this? That list that Paul gave of the sexually immoral and the homosexuals and, and the adulterers and the idolaters and the greedy, and the, that, that message itself, that list is not comprehensive. It goes much longer. Much longer. How will any of us inherit the kingdom of God? Psalm 24. The psalmist asked the same question. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Listen, you got to have the answer. Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You say, well, that's not me. That's not me. But then the psalmist says in verse 5, He, you, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, it must come to you. It must be given to you. You must receive the righteousness. You must be cleansed. You must be sanctified. And you must be justified. And that's a work of God through Christ. Third point. (laughs) I looked at this sermon and I thought, this is going to be a shorter sermon. Obviously not. The power of being loved by Christ, coming under that love. How do we overcome our not loving our brothers? How do we overcome our not loving God more than our own unrighteousness? How do we overcome this? We had a chance to sing. Some of the songs gave us the answers as well. You're being loved by God through Christ. And then walking daily in that love has power to equip you and enable you to love your brother rightly and to love God rightly and to hate unrighteousness rightly. The love of Christ, being loved by him through the cross. Paul says, do not deceive yourself. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as soon as you say, well, then I'm doomed, he says in verse 11, the most extraordinary verse in this entire passage, he says what? Look with me. And such were some of you, past tense. Such were some of you. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul levels the laying field. He says, you all start in the same place. I mean, honestly, here's a rhetorical question. Don't answer out loud. When you read this list, do you say to yourself, I- I'm, I'm a greedy, drunken, reviling, swindling, sexually immoral, adulterous, idolater? Did you see yourself starting in such a place? Because that's how we all started before Christ. That's where we were before Christ came to us and breathed life into us. 
Paul says, such were some of you. That was me. And that's the short list. I could add probably 30 or 40 adjectives and I imagine you could as well. Paul says, you were that person. But through Christ, God comes to all of us who are greedy, drunken, reviling, swindling, sexually immoral, adulterous, idolaters. He comes to us and he says, enough's enough. We're done with this lifestyle. You're dead, I'm going to make you alive and you're going to walk in holiness and you're going to be a son of my father. You're going to be a daughter of the king. Enough's enough. And he makes us alive and we're born again. And by being born again, he washes us of our unrighteousness. He sanctifies us from our unrighteousness. It says here that he justifies us from all our unrighteousness. Every bit. Washed, sanctified, and justified. This is the great work of Christ on the cross. The unregenerate sins that once made you and me unclean have been washed away. We, once an unholy people, have been sanctified and brought in, set apart for God's glory. We, all of us, who stood fully condemned before the holy law of God, have been pardoned by the blood of Christ. We, his church, his people. Verse 11 Verse 11 doesn't render well in the ESV. It actually says in the Greek, you ready? And it says, Paul says, and such were some of you. And he says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, and but you were justified. He offers three buts in contradiction to the old way of life. You were filthy, but now you're clean. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. You were once condemned by the law, but now you've been pardoned from the law. Old self, new self, dead, born again. You say, well, how was I washed? I still feel dirty. This verb in the Greek is interesting. I'm not going to go into the grammar for you, but it's in the middle voice. What does that mean? That means, unlike sanctification and justification, you being washed actually calls for your active participation. In other words, through the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross, you can be washed clean. But Christ calls you to be washed He calls you personally to come in to the shower of his blood and be cleansed from it. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Paul says, and now why do you wait? He says, rise and be baptized. And he says, you wash away your sins, calling on his name. Come under his covering. Be cleansed by the blood. There's much power there. I have worked with products for years, adhesives, paints. You know, I do a lot of restoring, cars, planes, houses. I do a lot of that. So I'm always dealing with certain products that do not come off with soap and water. I mean, they stick to you. They stick to you like permanent. There's a, there's a particular adhesive that I use for weather stripping. It's fantastic. The weather strip never comes off, but it doesn't come off your hands either. And so I can go into the bathroom and I can take hot water and I can take soap and I can take a a brush and I can scrub and scrub and scrub and I look and nothing comes off. And I can work as hard as I can. I can do all I can to get it off. I need product. I need carburetor cleaner. I need disc brake cleaner. That stuff takes off everything. Be careful. It takes off everything. And so I go and I get the product and it takes it off and I wipe it away. Saints, listen. Listen. 
You're sinful through and through. You cannot wash your sins away. You cannot do enough good works. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't do enough ministry to wash away your sins. You need product. You need a spiritual carburetor cleaner. You need the blood of Christ because only the blood of Christ washes away sin. Only the blood of Christ can wash away your sin. And that's why God calls you. He calls you. The Father says, come, my, my son, accomplish the work on the cross. And by his blood, he says, by the blood that was spilled, you can be made clean. So he says, come and be clean, be made clean. What are you waiting for? Rise up, be baptized, and be washed of your sins. Paul says also, that we have been past tense sanctified. We talked about this in detail several weeks ago. It is another necessary condition. You've got to be washed and you've got to be sanctified. You've got to be made clean and you've got to be set apart. All right? Sanctification, sanctum, holiness, set apart for the work and glory of God. You've got to be made clean and you've got to be set apart by God. That means your whole life, saints. That means if Jesus washes you, you got to give your whole life. You can't hold anything back. You can't hold it back. You can't hold your money back. You can't hold your time back. You can't say, I'll give myself to Christ except for my job. I'll give myself to Christ except for my marriage. Your whole life, if you're going to be set apart and consecrated to God, your whole life has to be His. Years ago, a missionary to Africa told this amazing story. He had been sharing the gospel with a particular village. Several people had come to a saving grace in Christ. One young lady, as he was getting ready to leave during a worship service, she came and she brought her offering, and it was a silver coin. And she was young. She gave it to the missionary, and the missionary immediately thought she must have stolen it. Where did she get this coin? It was 85 cents then to show you the time period, but it was an extraordinary amount of money. And so he asked her lovingly and kindly, where did you get this? And this young woman said, I sold myself into slavery for the rest of my life to a master who gave me this coin so that I could bring it here and give this offering to Jesus Christ for you to take this, that you might share the gospel with others, that they too might be, might be saved. That coin represented her entire life. That coin represented the fact that she had set herself apart for God. Now, I'm not telling you to go and enslave yourself to an earthly master. You already have a heavenly master, and he is good and gracious. But I am calling you, as Paul is, to be sanctified and set apart, just like this young lady was. Your whole life, all of who you are. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Peter said, once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now you're sanctified by the blood of Christ. The last thing that he, Paul adds on this list, he said you've got to be washed, you've got to be sanctified, and then he says you've got to be justified. And justification is absolutely necessary because you've got to be pardoned from the law. You've got to be right according to the law of God. You know, if you get washed and you get set apart but you're not justified, you're still damned. You've got to be justified in the eyes of the law of God. And that means you've got to be pardoned. If you're not pardoned for your sins and you have no hope of inheriting the kingdom of God. You must be pardoned 
for your sins. Past, present, and future. When Paul said, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he meant it. The great prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. The great reformer Martin Luther told a story that when he was sick, he had a dream that Satan had come to him and rolled out the scroll And Luther said on the scroll was every sin that he had committed. And as he started to read these sins, sin after sin after sin, Satan said to him, you have no hope of heaven. You'll never be saved. You can never be redeemed. Look at your sins. And as Martin Luther continued to read the list, sin after sin, growing more and more concerned, he realized there was something not written on that scroll. And in his dream, he said to Satan, all these sins are true. I've committed them all, but you forgot. It's not written on this scroll that Jesus Christ paid for all my sins. He was pardoned. He was saved. Through the perfect righteousness of Christ, you can be pardoned too. Saints, this great work of God through Christ on the cross is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Washing of your sins. Sanctified and set apart to serve and love the Lord now and forever. And then being justified to come before a holy God and have the law there and have the sins here and see that your sins, just like Luther's, have been covered by the blood of Christ and you are pardoned, you are set free. He does all this, this great work of washing and sanctifying and justifying so that we can right now love our brothers and not take them to court. So that we can right now love God rightly, not our own unrighteousness. Jesus accomplished this great work of washing, sanctifying, and justifying so that he might bring glory and honor to his Father by saving you and saving me and all those he's ordained to be saved before the foundations of the world to make for himself an inheritance, a people. He did this, saints, so that we right now can live holy lives now in the power of the gospel by the love of Christ now. We're going to take the Lord's Supper after I pray. This is one of the two holy ordinances that we as a church exercise, this in baptism. And as Pastor Kurt presides over this, as you take the juice that represents the blood and you take the bread that represents his broken body, don't just remember Christ, but know Christ now and the power of his resurrection that we might live in accordance with this great teaching from 1 Corinthians 6. There's power in the blood. 
to love our brothers. There's power in the body to love God. Pastor Kurt will call us to be washed, to be sanctified, and to be justified today. Let me pray to that end right now. Father, you are so gracious and so patient with us. We are so rebellious in light of the great work of Christ and the Holy Spirit that's been poured out. Forgive us, Father, for not loving one another as we ought. Forgive us for suing one another, even if it's only in our hearts. Forgive us, Father, I pray, for not loving you as God, for not being a people set apart to bring you glory, for not being a holy people. Forgive us, Father, and then call us as a church to be washed and sanctified and justified in Christ by his blood and his power that your name might be magnified and the name of your son, Jesus Christ, might be magnified both now and forever in the life of this church and your church throughout the world. I praise you for this passage. I thank you for the conviction it's brought upon my own heart and mine. I pray that same impact is felt by my brothers and sisters that we would reflect rightly, confess our sins, and live holy lives for you, for your honor, for your name, for your son, out of our love for you. Increase our love, I pray. Increase our love for one another. Increase our love for you, I pray, this morning. In Christ's name, amen.